Acts 4, 32 through chapter 5, verse 16. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they were even carried out, the sick, into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." There's a Mother's Day text for you, right? A couple things real quick as we get started. Uh, just I want to bring your attention to. The first is that, um, man, I hope you love your kids well if you have children and you invest in their lives. But there are children around the world who, who don't have access to the things that we have. And one of the things we're doing this month is we are focusing on Compassion International, the idea of child sponsorship. What a great way to celebrate. Like some of you who forgot to do Mother's Day, we got a Mother's Day thing for you that can honor your wife or your mom uh, today just by saying, I thought of you and I did this, right? Uh, but uh, we have a table set up out here. Um, if you do not sponsor a child somewhere, 
just let me challenge you, consider it, stop, check out the table, uh, and, and learn a little bit about compassion and how they do that. That's one thing. Second thing is, if you, if you don't have a green folder, you need to grab one. If you do, we have something new, and I'm, I just want to bring your attention to it. So if you have a green folder, pull it out, hold it up. Let me see them. Okay, so on one of the pages, there are actually two QR codes, but I want you to look at the one that's square. See that? Pull your phone out and take, like, scan it right now. Did you get it? Should open a website there for you. Well, one of the things we keep hearing is that it's hard. We, we don't know exactly where to go to register for stuff. And so what we're doing is we're creating a real centralized place where it's really easy with a QR code. It'll show up in the announcements up on the screen at the end of services. It'll be available for us in the bulletin, things like that, where you just scan the code. It will immediately take you in everything that we have registrations going for. You can just click on the registrations right there. The big one right now is family mission trip. You'll hear more about that at the end of service, but I just want to bring your attention to that. It's the first week we have it in the bulletin, but it will be there every week from now on just to make life easier. Uh, and and that, that, web, that link will also show up at a later time on our website is something you can just click on our website and find very easily. Um, man, I'm married way above my head. Do, do, those of you who know me and know my wife know that's true. And uh, being, a, being a husband and a dad um, is, can be a really fun thing, especially when um, you use the relationship with your spouse to embarrass the heck out of your children, right? Uh, so I'm walking through the mall the other night, and here's my two daughters, you know, we're in this public place, and I just looked at, I, I looked forward to my wife, who's like in front of me, my two daughters, my twin daughters right here, and I just, you know, loud enough where people around could hear me say this as well, I just, I looked at them and said, you need to tell your mom that I think she's hot. And they were like, Dad! You know, this awkward, uncomfortable moment, you know, and, and, and but it's just, it's kind of fun, or, or, or to go up and just, like, when, when their friends are around, just to go up and grab your wife and kiss her right on the lips. And they're like, oh, that's terrible. You know, just doing those sort of things. The other thing that, that is important for my children to know is that if I have to choose between them and my wife, they know it is not going to go well for them. Because, uh, you know, they literally, do you really love mom more than me? Yeah, yeah. If you haven't figured that out yet, something's wrong with you, right? Now, uh, uh, there are times, it's okay, you can kind of chuckle at this stuff. It's, <laughs> there are times where they want me to choose sides, and I just look at them and go, hey, I'm on your mom's side, so if mom told you to do this, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, because they are my kids, I love them, but she is my bride. So on Mother's Day, husbands, remind your wife and kids of that, right? Uh, and uh, the, the, the idea that there was a point in time where I stood on the stage and I looked my wife in the eye and said, I do, and of, out, of, out of three to four billion women on the planet, she was mine. That was a big day, right? Well, what happens as you read the Bible is you begin to see that there is this the, the fact that the earthly picture of marriage is actually a metaphor of something much greater. And that metaphor is the idea that Christ, as our rescue and redeemer, has his bride, and his bride is the church. The church and Christ are not the metaphor for marriage. Marriage is the metaphor that points to something greater and truer. I fail as a husband often, but um, Christ will never fail his bride. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, Verses 25 through 27, it says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, there's this command given to me as a husband that says, I am to do all I can in my human frailty and brokenness to love my wife as Christ loved the church. So it begins with the fact that Christ loves the church. But what I know about that is that that means he loves me, that Christ is saved and redeemed, that the church in the Bible is never a building. Uh, we, we are 16 years old. If you're not familiar with us as a church, for the first time in our 16 years, we're moving towards actually having a permanent location. But, but a couple of years ago during COVID, we, we woke up every Sunday morning or at least midweek going, where are we doing church this week? And God was gracious. We ended up in all kinds of parks and pavilions during the, the season of COVID when the school wouldn't rent to us. And we kept learning over and over again that church is not a building. It's not a hierarchy or structure. It's not priests and bishops and, 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 and cardinals and other leaders. That is not the church. The church is always a people. And that people exists on two levels. On one level, there is the church everywhere. Like, no matter where, where you talk about this morning, all around the world, there are people gathering and praising God and singing songs of worship, hearing the gospel proclaimed and worshiping Jesus as their redeemer, the redeemer, their savior, their God. And we are here this morning part of that eternal, universal church, the people of God. And that what God is doing in the whole story of, God, of the Bible is saving for himself a people. And, and the bride language that he has chosen us, he has given himself to us, he is for us. There is the eternal or universal church, all people all over the place who love Jesus just like you and I do, if you're a follower of Jesus, that are the church. But there's also the church local, that, us here. The, the body of Christ here, the bride of Christ here, that we in this city are the people that are part of the, and, and there are other churches that represent this as well, but we are a local gathering, a local outpost of the mission of God, the beauty of Jesus, that we gather together to trust in and hold on and to worship Jesus together. And, and that the scripture, what the, how the Bible presents this, it's just really cool how this imagery of bride goes all through the Old Testament, runs through the New Testament, all the way to the end of the story of that God has chosen his bride, and that is you and me, and he is pouring his love into us, that we are not necessarily lovable, we are not beautiful, we are not worthy, but God, and, and through Christ, he loves us anyway, right? And as he pours his love into us, that love is transforming. In other words, we are not beautiful and lovable, but God loves us anything. And when God loves us, he takes those who are not beautiful and lovable and turns them into people who are beautiful and lovable. That, that the grace of God poured into his people transforms them. The, the image of the Old Testament is really cool. It's the story of Hosea and Gomer. It's a crazy story about this prophet in the Old Testament, and God tells him to go marry this woman who has this life story background of being a prostitute. And Hosea marries her, which is kind of weird. And they start having children, and, and the names of the children, like they start having kids, you can pick up from, from the names that they give their children that something is way off, that literally there is like, some of, the, some of the names start, are literally Hosea kind of saying, you know, name of the kid, I hope this is my kid. Like names matter. And, and that's kind of the flavor of the names. But then what happens, she comes to a point where her guilt and shame and whatever caused it, she leaves him. 
She ends up back in a lifestyle. She ends up with a pimp again. She ends up, you know, in prostitution again. And, and, and you would think, okay, what God would say to Hosea is, just forget her. Find somebody new. But God tells him that he is to go find her pimp to buy her back out of the sex slave trade and to bring her home. And, and it's a weird story, but what happens is from that moment, Hosea, who's a prophet, begins to articulate this message to the Old Testament people of God that says, this is who you are. You were worthless, you were nothing, and I loved you. Why do you keep failing and leaving me? There's no better place than right here. I tell my wife all the time, if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her, right? But part of the message that, that we have for each other is, listen, there's, there's no better place than right here next to me. And this is God's message to his church, the beauty of his redemption story of, of saving and redeeming a people for himself. And so we have this weird, weird story. I mean, imagine you're talking to somebody, it's the Jerusalem church, because that's what we're looking at. We're in this, this amazing story of how Christianity started with just a small group of people and is now spreading. And right now we have the church in Jerusalem. It's the only church. It's the mother church of all churches. Uh, right now, the only place Christianity exists is in this capital city of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And our text today is very interesting. It has these two summary sections. The first summary section there is at the end of chapter 4. The second summary section uh, picks up at chapter 5, verse 12. And so what happens is Luke, who is the author, is giving summaries of what's going on in the church, what's happening in this local community of faith that are the redeemed, rescued people out of this city, in this culture. How is God transforming their lives? What are they doing as a community? We see all kinds of beautiful things. This text echoes Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 that we looked at a couple months ago, where the, the beauty of this new community who is was not lovable, but is saved and redeemed by Christ and loved by him. And now his love is changing them to be different type of people in their city, a type of people that are compelling to the world. And those people, because of their witness and testimony, more and more people are coming to Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, it was a three church of 3,000. By the time we're here, it's a church that is well over probably ten to 15,000 people that is the community of faith in the city of Jerusalem. And here they are doing these rhythms, but in the middle of it, you have this really weird. I mean, imagine you're talking to somebody who's like hanging out in a Jerusalem church. And, and you're, you're like, all right, I, I know you go to church every Sunday. Tell me about your church. And you're like, man, it's crazy. It is the coolest place. Like, first of all, we go there and everybody is just like, we are so tight. Everybody just feels so close. I have all these people, like, I didn't even know them a year ago. And now they're like my best friends. But not only my best friends, they really care for me. I was going through this time where, like, I, I'd lost my job and I was out of work. And next thing you know, man, people in my, my faith community, they sold, like this one family sold a piece of ground. And, and, and they gave some of that money, and, and man, it, it, my family made it through. And you're like, wow, that, that, is, that is amazing. And it, like every time I go to the temple court, this place called Solomon's Colonnade, that is this big area in the temple. It's this porch that is kind of the main entry into the biggest part of the temple. We go there, and we just keep getting together. And every time I go, we sing a few songs, we pray a few, a few prayers. One of the apostles reminds us that Jesus died and rose again, and he preaches to us. Man, every time he preaches, I just feel the Spirit of God moving. Wow, that's amazing. And, and man, there was this guy who, who, who was crippled, and he got healed. 
<laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, this guy, it was, it was really cool. He was crippled and got healed. And, and man, he was like dancing around the temple. That was crazy and amazing. And now there's other people who are getting healed. So much so that like Peter was walking through the, through the temple one day. And there was this person who had this disease. And Peter's shadow fell on him. And next thing you know, that disease went away. It's, it's nuts, I know. And the person's like, really? And he's like, yeah. And then there, there was that one day where that couple showed up and they just dropped dead in front of us. You're like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, it was kind of crazy. First, the husband came in, put a few dollars down in front of Peter's feet, and then next thing I know, he killed over dead, and they took him out and buried him. And then just a few minutes later, his, or a couple hours later, his wife came in. We were still kind of hanging out, praying, enjoying one another. And she came in, and Peter looked at her, said a few things to her, and she killed over dead. They carried her out. Wait, wait, you're telling me, like, in your church, like, like, like that, would, that would stir a buzz, right? If Acts chapter 5 happened here, and we had this moment where we said, all right, because you lied to God, you're dead, boom, it would freak people out, and they wouldn't know whether to come to church or not. Why does this show up in the text, and what is happening in this story? And this is, what I, this is a connection I want you to see. This whole text is about Christ's love for his bride. It's a, it's a Mother's Day text. It is about Christ's love for his bride. And that's what I want to point out. I just want to show you some things from this story that are beautiful about how Jesus loves his bride. He loves the church. He gave himself up for her. He is redeeming a people for his own purpose and glory. And and his love poured into the life of people is what makes him beautiful. How does this happen? Just real quick, how does this happen? Because he died and rose again. The good news of Jesus Christ is this, that God loves you. No matter where you're at in your story, where you're at, wherever at you're in your life, he has you here this morning to hear this message. And that Christ loves you so much that he gave his life for you. And if you will turn from your sin and you will trust in him, look at what it says at the very first verses here. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed. That's who the church is. How do you know if you're part of the church? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you, have you turned to Jesus and said, listen, I know I've gone my own way, but today I am turning and following you. I know that you died on the cross. My sin is so broken. I am not beautiful. I am one who will run from you all the time, but today I turn from me and I, I'm trusting in you. I give you my life. If you have believed in Jesus, then you are included in the community of faith. You were part of the church. You've experienced the love of Christ. You've experienced the beauty of his death for you. You have experienced the power of his resurrection in you. God has given you his Holy Spirit. Now, if you're here today and you have not come to the point where you've turned from from yourself and trusted in Jesus, then you were not part of Jesus' people. You were not part of his community of faith. There are people who have been rescued, redeemed by God, and there are people who have turned to themselves and trusted in their own way. And here, those who believe we're together and they have everything in common is how this whole section begins. And, and these people, Christ is doing a work in them. And that same Jesus, through the same power of the Holy Spirit, does this work in us. And it trans- transforms. It is Jesus loving his bride. Let's talk about three ways that this happens in the text. Uh, the story shows us three loving acts Jesus does for his bride. Three loving acts that Jesus does for his bride. And the first one is that he sanctifies his bride. He sanctifies his bride. Uh, he sets his bride apart for himself. Uh, that's what every wedding ceremony should be. 
Every wedding ceremony should be two people standing on the stage saying, out of all the people on planet Earth, you are the one that I'm going to give myself to. And what Christ has done is he's looked at his people and he's given himself to us and he's invited us to respond by saying, I give myself to you. And he has a redeemed people. Now, this is a picture of all the people on earth. And and, in Exodus chapter 19, God says this to his people in the Old Testament. He says, all the people on the earth are mine, but you will be my treasured possession. You, you are mine in a different way. You are the people I've chosen to be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my people. We, we refer to marriage as a covenant, and it's a picture of the covenant, this, this relationship that God forms with his people. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. There is a, a, a betrothal, a giving in marriage uh, uh, of a bride to a husband there, and God is, Christ is transforming his people. And these people who believed had all kinds of things. Look at what the text says. Verses 32 and 33, he says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. Look at that, great grace was upon them. What's going on? God the Father, through God the Son, is pouring the grace of Jesus into their lives. What is grace? It means God just bestows his love and gives us everything we don't deserve. It is that we are Gomer. We are Hosea's bride. We don't do anything that merits his gifts and his favor. But in spite of us and for us, out of his love for us, he keeps showering us with his grace. That great grace was upon them. That's what we want to see happen in us this morning. That's what we want here, that it is the grace of Jesus. Everything is about Jesus, and it is the grace of Jesus in us that is transforming us. But look what happens as that grace is poured into them. It becomes a fountain, a a channel, a beautiful pouring out that fills them, and as great grace is upon them, what happens is they become people who experience grace. They become people who give grace. That, That grace is being poured into them, and it's transforming them so they no longer live by the rhythms, the dictates, the values, the attitudes of the world around them. They are now marching to the beat of a different drum, and their lives are marked by the beauty of Jesus in them. They're full of thanksgiving. There's a beautiful unity. Like, our culture is fragmented like crazy. We live in this this moment. I feel like I'm hitting it every week because I just wanted to sink deep in. We live in this moment where everywhere you go in the world, lines are drawn, sides are taken, and, and we have to be on one side or the other. And social media has just made it way, way worse. And into the midst of this, Christ has redeemed the people and he has made us unified. He has poured his grace so that I may not agree with you, but if you love Jesus and I love Jesus, we are in the same people, we are on the same team. And there is something beautiful where I give myself away to you. Even if I don't vote like you, even if I don't have the same political values or attitudes, we are together. Why? Because what unites us is Jesus and the gospel. They become unbelievably generous. I have to be honest, I have not seen this level of generosity in church in my lifetime. I've seen pockets that were close. But, but listen, they literally have people going and selling houses and land, downsizing their life. 
They, they, like us, live in a world where the temptation is to push people away and hold on to possessions. And they become people who push their possessions away and hold on to people. Do you see that? There there is beauty in in their generosity. There is beauty in, in what is happening. And what's happening here is that Christ is transforming them into a new community. Now, what you don't see just by reading this text is that Luke picks up on language that is part of the culture of the world around him. The language of the text of one mind, one heart, one soul actually comes from Greek philosophers and writers where people like Pythagoras and Plato and Cicero, this guy named Philo of Alexandria who was in northern Africa, and what they began to, the, the, the philosophers and these, these thinkers from Greece believed that Greece had ushered in this new era, right? That the rise of Hellenism and the rise of the Greek thought and culture had brought this new season into the world. And what would eventually happen because of Greece would be that there would be a new community where everybody would rally around and agree with the Greek thought, Greek way of seeing the world, and that eventually the whole world would become a new community where there was one thought, one, one frame of mind, one way of doing things. And, and it would usher in this golden age. In fact, if you've ever heard that language, it actually comes from, I think it's Cicero, who talked about the golden age of the Greek experiment that was coming in and the outcome was going to be this great society where everybody is here. And, and what happened though is that this utopia that, that we thought, they thought would happen. And I think we in America still think, man, we're trying this experiment. If we just get everybody on the same team and vote the same way, we can create this utopia. It, it just never happened. Because somebody's always in power, somebody's always ruling, there's always people who differ with these. Eventually, Rome arises, tries the same experiment. And what you have by this point in time is people in the world who are frustrated with the dream of a utopia, of a golden age. And here's Luke coming along. It's beautiful in the text, coming along saying, you want to see what the golden age looks like? Look at the people of Jesus. That's where it's happening. He is turning them into a new community because the lives of people in this church and hopefully in our church are so transformed by grace that people who receive grace become people who give grace. And it is the love of Christ poured into his people that makes her different, that makes us different. It's not the rules. It's not all these rules, do this, do this. No, it's the grace of God poured into us that transforms us. That makes us new people, different people, right? It it is the grace of God that sanctifies, sets his bride apart, makes her different, makes us a different people so that our values and attitudes are different than those of the world. This is one way that Christ loves his church. His bride is by sanctifying her, his grace changing us. The second way we see in the text is he, he, not only does he um, sanctify or make his bride beautiful and holy, but he provides for his bride. He provides, he gives these good gifts to his bride that helps her uh, as, as the people of God, helps the, the community of faith live out the mandates and they are gifts from him. There, there are four and more in the text. Well, let me just point out four real quick. Four beautiful gifts that Christ gives to his people that are in this text that are echoed all through the New Testament. The first, the first beautiful gift here is the gift of unity. He does not tell them, go work out unity. 
Unity is already happening. In fact, what you won't find in the New Testament is a command to go make unity. What you have are these beautiful commands that say, protect the unity of the the people, preserve the unity of the bond of peace, fight for unity. We don't create the unity in the gospel. The unity of the gospel was created by Jesus. Unity in Jesus' people is not, can't we just all get along and hug one another? Unity is around Christ and what he did for us. And and what we see in this church is that they had everything in common. They were unified. There's this tightness of community. There's this generosity of spirit. They they are, are, are loving one another. And the unity that comes from Christ in a culture who already is turning up the heat against these people is visible from the outside. We're not called to go create unity. We're called to maintain the unity of the bond of peace because Christ has redeemed us. Um, Man, wouldn't it be good to go any place in the world and walk in that place and feel like, man, no matter who I was, where I came from, what my struggle was, I'm in a people who love me and they're okay with my struggle and my sin and my need for grace. There's there's unity. There, There is also the gift of generosity and care. What happens is that God gave the ultimate gift in the person of Jesus, and now they are giving generous people. And you have this pouring out of generosity towards the people, uh, through, through the people of God to the other people of God so that they get to the point where nobody in their congregation, no, nobody in their community of faith has a need that isn't met by somebody in the faith. There is also the gift of godly leaders. Godly leaders. And this is where the story connects us to Barnabas. Check it out. Just, you, you can look at this. I'm not going to reread it right now, but look at this. Inner Barnabas. Now, here's one of the interesting things. If you've ever read or studied Luke, or if not, you're learning it today. Luke the, or, I'm sorry, Acts here. Luke the author likes to do entrance of character in, in subtle moments that are going to become a big character later. We're going to find this later when we introduce this guy named Saul slash Paul. He has two names. You'll have to come back to find out why. But Saul slash Paul has this weird entrance. But when you read it, you know where his story goes. And here comes Barnabas. Um, his name's Joseph. So everybody calls him Joe. But now nobody calls him Joe anymore. Now he's Barnabas. He picked up a nickname that means son of encouragement. And the reason he picked up that nickname is because he is just this jovial, like he just reeks of positivity. Like every church needs that, and there are days where those people annoy the heck out of me, right? But, but they're just like, brother, it's great. You can do it. They're cheering us on. They just make everybody in the room feel good and positive. And what we see in Barnabas as you take the story forward is that this guy, he, he's introduced to us here, but he, he becomes a very important leader in the early church um, because he is the bridge builder. He is the encourager. It, it starts with this guy named Saul and Paul. So he's going to show up again with this guy who's named Saul. His, the first time we're going to meet Saul, he's actually standing over the murder of a Christian. And then he starts persecuting Christians. He's arresting them, having them like, like literally brought to be executed and be beat up by, by the crowds in Jerusalem. He is putting them in prison. He does not enter the scene as a good guy. Barnabas enters the scene as a good guy. Paul will not. But Paul meets Christ. Again, you'll have to come to hear that story. It's beautiful. It's one of the great testimony stories of the Bible. Paul meets Christ. But now Paul's a Christian, and he's preaching Jesus. But the last time he was in Jerusalem, he was killing Christians. And here's the apostles, the 
Initial followers of Jesus going, I don't think we want to meet this guy. Uh, he might be, he might be a, you know, a, a, a double agent here. He might be a spy. It is Barnabas who grabs Paul and goes, let's go, man. I'm taking you to these dudes. They need to meet you and know that what's happening in your life is legit. It's on the up and up. And so he grabs, it is Barnabas who grabs Saul and brings him to the apostles so that they can build a relationship of, in the gospel so that the unity that Christ has, been, has already created can show up in this relationship between Saul and the apostles. Later, the city of Antioch, which is way north, has an explosion of Christianity. This church, the church of Jerusalem, sends Barnabas to go check things out, and he becomes one of the pastors of this amazing city in the Roman Empire. And then Barnabas is going to be the guy who goes on these missionary journeys with Paul and starts going all over the world preaching Jesus and planting churches. He becomes a big player. And so when you and I read this, we see here's Barnabas. Mm. Luke's not just dropping a name here just to point something. This guy's going to matter. And as readers read this, they already know who Barnabas is. And so here's this guy, Barnabas, important leader. And, and what's being pointed here is that he, is, he, he ascends to the place where people know who he is because out of um, unbelievable gospel-centered motives, he goes and sells a whole piece of ground. And he brings the proceeds, the whole proceeds, and he lays at the apostles' feet. Now, you can imagine what, what would happen one Sunday morning when somebody, not, not making a show of themselves, but you just all of a sudden, man, he owned, he owned that five acres that was south of town. It was worth a lot of money. He sold that, and he just, he just brought that and laid that at the apostles' Like, he laid the money at the apostles' feet to care for the poor and the needy and the marginalized and the outcast. We'd be like, Whoa. That's amazing. And he, it's obvious he didn't do it for the notoriety. But what happens as a result is that he becomes somebody who is honored, recognized, and loved. God, God has given them a, the church another godly leader that has the character of Christ. Anywhere you go in the church where you have godly leaders. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, I'm that guy. You have to judge that for yourself. But we have... Our elders here are unbelievable men who have the heart of Barnabas. Be thankful for them. They are the gift of Christ to his bride for their good. And Christ also gives them power. There is power to do two things. One is supernatural. There are signs, wonders, miracles, all these crazy things. But more importantly, the power to stand up in front of the people and preach Jesus crucified is there. They've been threatened. They've been told, keep preaching, you may die. And they preach anyway. And the power of the Spirit is coming in their preaching, their proclamation. And Christ is using that to change it. These are, these are Jesus' gifts to his people that he gives them unity. He gives them generosity and, and care for one another. He gives them uh, uh, leaders. He gives them power. And this becomes the way that Christ is using his people in the larger culture to see the gospel come. And so what we see is the love of Jesus shows up by, by um, setting his bride apart, by loving her and changing her from the inside out. He loves his bride by giving these beautiful gifts and providing for her. And Jesus loves his bride by protecting her. That is what this story in the middle, Ananias and Sapphira, are all about. They are about the protection of Jesus. Now what happens in our culture, and really any culture, you kind of go, Man, that seems harsh. 
Like, they sold a piece of ground. They were still pretty generous. They show up and throw, not all the money. Yeah, they lied about it, but that, come on, that, that seems like lying's not that big a deal. Really, God killed them? Like, that's what happened? Why in the world would God do this? And this is when we start thinking, man, I just, we have people in our culture who just tell us, I, I just can't believe in a God who judges like this. Like, this is where some people will just tap out and go, nope, can't believe in that. And sadly, what you end up with, with a God who doesn't judge sin is a, a world where sin has the final say, just so you know. If you decide to tap out on a belief in a God who judges, what you're saying is the wickedness and evil, the Hitlers and the, the, the you know, the, the evil regimes of the world have the final say, and there's nothing God can or will do about it. The, the doctrine of the justice and judgment of God is at the core God's love for his creation and his world to say that the evil and injustice that is done in the world will not win. But all through history, there have been people saying, oh, I just can't believe in this. There was this guy in the second century, his name was Marcion. He was actually a bishop in the early church, but he decided... And actually got a whole bunch of followers to side with him that, you know, when you read the Bible, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament has this God who seems like he's just mad all the time. God is always, and fire coming out of his nostrils, and things are blowing up. And, uh, you know, here's this, this God who's just a judge. And then you get to the New Testament, and you find Jesus. He just seems cuddly. I like Jesus. He just seems meek and mild. And what Marcion's conclusion was, was that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are just two different gods. That Jesus is the true creator, eternal God who showed up here. But the God of the Old Testament is this demi-urge that Jesus actually came to defeat. And, and if you hear that, if you've grown up in church, you would go, ah, I can't believe, like that's silliness. We, we don't believe that. But how often do we step into the space where what we're trying to do is we're trying to take God's judgment and justice and we're like in places trying to make excuses for him going, yeah, it's not really what's going on. Listen, what happened is these two people came to church on a Sunday morning. They put money in front of the apostles and Peter looked at them and said, because of what you did, today's your last day. They breathe their life. And then a couple of guys who signed up for the intern ministry we're given a new ministry. Like, can, can you imagine a conversation? So what do you do for the church? I, I dig graves. That's my job. Wait, wait, what? Yeah, we're, we're, we're the grave digging ministry. We haven't started that one here yet, just so you know. What is going on here? And what we do is we end up like Marcion. We may not state it that way, but I just can't. can't but, but here's the problem. There is a lot more grace and love and beauty of, the, of Christ. There's a ton of patience, a ton of long-suffering. There is God pursuing his people and loving them. And there's a ton of that in the Old Testament. And, and there's moments like this in the New that are done in the name of Jesus. It's, it's not quite so neat and clean. Why would God do this? And I think to understand it in this text, we do have to connect the dots between what happened right before it. So there's a chapter heading, and this is why I'm preaching this this way. There's a chapter heading that maybe shouldn't be right there. Because let, let me just paraphrase the flow. There's this guy named Barnabas. Man, he, he's a stud. He's a hero of the faith. He's, he's this guy. He would never claim that for himself, but man, he is the most encouraging guy you've ever known. He is building bridges, and man, he becomes this amazing pastor and leader in church. Everybody loves him, but it all started when he showed up one Sunday morning with, he, he sold this field, a lot of money from him. He set it at the apostles' feet, and the church just went, 
man, this is a guy we believe in. Well, well, there's this other couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they saw that. And so what did they do? They, they go out and they sell a field too. But they get this much money for it. You know, they get a million dollars, and what they do is they show up with $200,000. It, it's probably a sizable gift they show up with. And they lay that at the apostles' feet, telling them that that was the full price of the field. And, and at that moment, Peter goes, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's clues. What? Is it because they didn't give it all? No, that's not the reason. Is it because they weren't generous enough? Has nothing to do with it. Peter actually looks at him and says, it was your field, dude. It was your, it was your field. And, and when you sold the field, the money was your money. But here's the problem. You, you've, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And you're about to take your last breath. Why does God do this? Well, I want you to imagine for a second if God didn't do this. If Peter didn't have this prophetic vision and then God act decisively, what happens? The next thing you know, Ananias and Sapphira are right next to Barnabas in leadership. Ananias and Sapphira are looked up to. They are honored. They are valued. But the motivational structure of their heart is obvious. They are not there because they are godly people who want to make much of Christ. They are people who want much made of them. They are wolves who are trying to find a place inside the sheep den. And God acts in a clear way, protecting his bride. This is the baby new church in Jerusalem. And God says, no way, I'm letting this go. And he acts against this couple in a, in a visible way. My, my wife and I were on this hike one time uh, at Shaw Nature Reserve. Uh, out here towards past Pacific. It's a beautiful place for hikes. And Josiah, my son who plays drums up here, was probably seven years old. My twins uh, were uh, three, around three years old. They're just little girls. We're, we're, we're still hiking with a stroller on this beautiful path. There's a lake over here. You, you, it was springtime. You see all these birds. And, you know, there was still, you know, you know, crane over there. It just, like the beauty of it, the, the flowers were just blooming. We're just enjoying, but we kept the girls in the stroller because at that age, if we let the girls out of the stroller, they were gone, right? And, and they were just, you know, so we're walking, but, but there were moments where we let them out, and around this, this bend, there is a tree house. Like, they literally, they built a tree house up in this tree that you climb up the tree house, end up, look out over the lake. It was just a cool place, and, and we'd been there a couple times, and so we just, we let the girls out, told Josiah, be responsible, get them there. The path to the treehouse was literally about the distance from me to the back of the wall. We could see them as they climbed everything. And so we get them out, and they, we're like right at this little bend in the, in the path that goes there. They take off running, and Heidi and I just talking, having that good old time as a husband and wife, you know, enjoying the moment. And my wife hits me in the chest. Boom! And for a second, I like, I'm like, I can't breathe. You know, like, and she just starts backing up and I see her start trembling. And, and I know my wife know well enough to know that if that's what's going on, there's a snake somewhere. And sure enough, 
in the path about 10 steps ahead of me, there is a huge copperhead. And it was a copperhead. It was completely across the path. It was there uh, kind of sunning itself in that space. But knowing where it was, we now also realize that my kids are already at the treehouse, which means they just stepped right over that thing. They just hopped right over it. Just kept running. Never even saw it. My wife turns wife. She cannot speak. She is trembling. It, I, I knew whose job it was to deal with the snake. <laughs> I, I was not excited about this job, mind you. I'm thinking, how am I getting that snake? Because now that snake is keeping my wife from her babies who think she is now in her mind going, they could have died, oh my gosh. Like she's already crying and crying that out. And I'm like, but she ain't going there because the snake is there. Whose job is it to deal with the snake? It was my job. So I find this big old long log and this snake raises its head and starts hissing at me. And I get that log, like the stick, it's like probably eight foot long. I can barely hold it. And I, like if I throw this in the wrong direction, like if it comes back at me, or for the love of God, if this thing goes flying at Heidi, it is over. <laughs> right? So I grab this stick and I grab it and I throw it as far as I can. And the snake is going through the air going, woo! You know, I mean, it goes flying. Then she just trembling, grabs my hand and walks to the treehouse she hugged her kids. It was my job to protect my bride and the children that day, right? By the way, we have not been back on that hike since then, <laughs> just so you know. There's a, there's a snake in the garden. In fact, it says it in the text. Look, look at what he says. Look, look at what Peter says. Verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Do you see the snake in the garden? Do you see the snake in the garden? And Jesus kills the snake. It seems harsh to Ananias and Sapphira, but wolves in the people of God will destroy it here. It still destroys it today. Now, here's what happens. Does God still do this stuff? I'm not going to stand up and say no. I actually think there are moments in my life where maybe God did this. I'm not going to tell you the stories, but I'm not a prophet either. I can't say for sure, but I do know some stories of people who turned against God, and boy, they, they were not long on this earth when they went after God's people. But he doesn't always do it. But what we find is later in the book of Acts, it, God gives this responsibility to the elders of the church to be aware of the wolves. He is now protecting the, the, the sheep through the leaders that he has given as a gift. But, but that's what he's doing. It's a crazy story, but what's God doing? He's protecting his bride. He, he, he's caring for her. And, and what does he protect her from? Well, first of all, he protects her from the wolf. I mean, that's just obvious and real. He protects her from the wolf. But not only does he protect her from the wolf, he also protects his bride from uh, the, um, their own sense of, of complacency, their own sense of falling away. What we see here at the end of this story is that the whole church was filled with great fear. Well, yeah, if you came to church on a Sunday morning and a couple came up and lied to God and, and, and the pastor or one of the elders said, you know, because you did that, you're breathing your laugh. Last, that person falls over. A few hours later, the wife comes. Like, all of a sudden, you'd be like, oh, man, this God is, like, legit. He is for real. He is. And, and, and so it says they fear the Lord. We're told in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They fear the Lord. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to 
fear the Lord. It does not mean that I just have this sense of awe and reverence. It means that I know that at any moment, the God who created me could undo me if he chose to. But in his grace, rather than pouring his wrath on me, he has given me Christ instead. Fear of the Lord means I am in awe of the power of God and also in awe of the grace of God. And I run to him. This is the fear that a a healthy fear. There are some dads who beat their kids. That is horrible. But there are dads who love their kids and discipline out of that love. And the kids have this fear that says, man, I'm not running away from my father. When he calls my name, I am running to him. That's what this is. And that's a good thing, right? And the fear of the Lord comes upon the people. Their complacency of getting very comfortable with the grace of God and feeling like I can do anything I want to, God will never judge me, is over for this church. And we need to hear the message that there is a God who does justice in the world and he will protect his bride because he loves us. Now, he gives us gifts, he pours his grace into us, he makes what is ugly beautiful, and he protects his bride. This text is about the love of Jesus for you. That's what it's about. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a part of the bride of Christ. It is a Mother's Day message. Because he is still defending and fighting and protecting you and pouring his life out for you. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation. Believe. Turn from yourself and trust in Jesus. It's that simple. Come to him. At the end of our service, we will have people over here at the corner by these red doors who will be ready to pray with you. If you're like, I don't quite get this, but I'm I'm curious. I want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. Or if today you're ready to trust in Christ, today, let today be the day of salvation. Our band's going to come up here and we're going to sing and worship Jesus together. We're going to celebrate him. As part of the next few minutes, we are going to be taking up an offering. If you're a guest here, that is not for you. Our offering is a way for the people who are part of this church to be generous because of the grace of God, right? And we're going to give. We're going to pray and sing and celebrate Jesus. For all of us, it is a chance to repent and turn from ourselves and turn to Jesus and to hold on to him. It's a chance to celebrate that we are his people and he is our God. We're going to do that together. And we invite you here in just a second to join after I pray to join and sing. Now what happens, this whole series we're calling it To Be Continued, and so here's Acts. We've been doing, uh, if you haven't been with us, we've kind of been, kind of been doing the Batman thing because it's this ongoing story. So, so you might wonder, hmm, what happens? These guys got threatened about preaching in Solomon's portico in the temple, and they're there preaching. Do the religious leaders just let them be? Do, 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 do they just keep preaching, or does something bad happen? Or, or, or what about this church? Is it all lollipops and roses? Everything's wonderful. The church, like so far, it's just been like, woo, the church is awesome. Do they ever have any problems? Or, or, or what about this Barnabas guy? It, is he going to be important? And why is that matter in the story? And, and the church has gotten so big. Do, do the religious leaders who are, have opposed them in the city just go, Maybe we ought to join them. Or does something else happen? Well, guess what? Same Acts time, same Acts channel next week, all right? But today we're going to pray and we're going to worship. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your grace and mercy in our lives. Pray that as we sing here in the next few minutes, you will lift our souls and, and we will find joy in you. In your name I pray, amen.